You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Casper Henderson. On his new book, A Book of Noises, Notes on the Oraculus. Casper Henderson's debut, The Book of Barely Imagined Beings, published by Granter in 2012, won the Roger Deakin Award of the Society of Authors and the Gerard Award of the Royal Society of Literature and was shortlisted for the Royal Society Winton Prize for Science Books. A New Map of Wonders was published by Granter in 2017, and today we're here to talk about Casper's new book, which is A Book of Noises, Notes on the Oraculus. Casper, welcome back to Little Atoms. Hey Neil, thanks for having me back. Great to see you. Tell us first of all, I guess, what inspired this book? So when I was working on A New Map of Wonders, I went to see a murmuration of knots, a kind of bird, a wader actually. And they do a murmuration, you know, it's amazing to see. But what surprised me was the sound they made. You could hear as they flew overhead, almost as if you could hear every individual pair of wings beating slightly differently. And it was an astonishing moment. And it made me realise or helped me realise just how little I knew about sound. So that's kind of the short version of of how I got here. So what do you mean by oraculous? Uh, Well, it's a kind of uh, more or less new word for the miraculous, but the miraculous that you hear as in oral, oraculous, the ear marvellous, the, you know, we are very visual creatures, but we also have really astonishing powers of hearing. We often underestimate just how amazing our powers of hearing are and how they can connect us to the world. So I wanted to find a word that would capture something of that. And that's what oraculous is intending to do. And the book is split into categories, which are raised not least because this is partly influenced by the um, the ecologist Bernie Krause, someone who was on Little Atoms many years ago. Um, so tell us about the categories in the book. Yeah, um, so there are four categories in the book. Uh, the amazing Bernie Krause, uh, you know, the great animal orchestra, I'm sure it's a book we both love. Um, he came up with three to help um, distinguish the kinds of sounds that he was hoping to record and and uh, appreciate help us to appreciate. So he came up with geophony, that's the sounds of the earth, the non-living earth. So that could be things like thunder and lightning, uh, volcanoes and so on. Biophony, that's for the sounds of the living world, but specifically in the non-human living world. So anything from birdsong to, I don't know, the giggling of bonobos. <laughs> 
and then anthropophony for the sounds of the human world. And that's everything from sweet music to terrible noise pollution. Uh, so I took those three categories as a kind of part of the organizational framework for the book and added a fourth one. Uh, this is another word I kind of more or less made up, which is cosmophony. That sounds of the cosmos. So obviously, we always we all know that kind of in space, nobody can hear you scream. There is no sound in space. What's really the case, though, is there's no sound where there's a vacuum. And not all the cosmos is a vacuum. Obviously, stars and, and uh, nebulae and other things are, are concentrations of matter. And there are both seismic and acoustic vibrations in space. And of course, there's also all the sounds that people have imagined in space, not least uh, the music of the spheres. So I took these kind of four areas and um, and kind of had a rootle around in the, in the essays in the book. And you recommend reading this book, people could just dip in and dip out of it, all of the, the sections stand alone. So we're going to jump through the book and, and pull out certain aspects of it to talk about as we go. But we're going to jump quite a way forward, first of all, because I want to talk about I guess, how our hearing, how human hearing developed. Let's talk about how we began to hear. I guess there are at least two answers to that question. One is kind of the evolutionary origin, and then there's also the individual origin. So, you know, in in, in the sense of when we uh, we conceived and how we learned to hear over time as individuals. With regard to the evolution of hearing, it goes a very, very long way back and obviously very I hate to call them simple organisms because even bacteria are not at all simple. But, you know, if we, we, we often talk about kind of simple organisms like bacteria or single celled organisms. They obviously they are they wouldn't survive if they weren't acutely sensitive to their environments, to chemical signals, maybe electromagnetic signals, but also vibrations. And so hearing, in some sense, goes back to at least very close to the beginning of life, if not right to its beginning. And indeed, maybe we'll come on to the role of sound in the creation of, of the universe at some point. But anyway, so you've got the distant origins of, of hearing in our single-celled ancestors. And then uh, our more recent kind of fishy cousins <laughs> and uh, our, our direct ancestors were fish. They have very, uh, they, they had, our ancestors had, and our contemporary cousins, the living fish, many of them have astonishingly sensitive hearing. They also have, among other things, lateral lines down the side of their bodies which uh, can detect tiny movements in the water and these are in fact quite evolutionarily well they're certainly related I mean uh, not to go into too much detail and to kind of slightly simplify but they are related to the organisms of hearing we have the the cochlea the tiny kind of snail like snail shaped structures inside our ears which have tiny hairs in them Um, they have a, a likeness to the, the tiny hairs inside cells on the lateral lines of, of fish. So our sense of hearing goes a very long way back in fish and uh, all kinds of kind of jerry-rigged kind of Heath Robinson uh, adjustments when we got on land so we could hear through air, which is a much less dense medium, or our ancestors, I should say, could hear through air. And then, of course, when you come to the individual, so ears are fully formed in quite early on in, in the development of a fetus um, just within a few months. And a baby in the womb can detect sounds. It can hear its mother's blood and breathing and also probably her singing and talking. And we're sensitive to these sounds very early on before we're born. We'll come right back then to the beginnings of the universe, and the, the section on cosmophony. And um, I mean, you just mentioned the possibility of the sound in the, you know, helping the creation of the universe or the development of the universe, at least. But let's just think about you mentioned the, um, of course, the, you know, the famous tagline from Alien in space, nobody can hear you scream, sound doesn't travel through a vacuum. 
but let's think on the um you know the old philosophical saw if a you know if a tree falls in a forest etc if there is a sound in space but there is no even simple organisms with very basic hearing systems to actually hear it does it make a sound Right. I mean, this question comes, it's funny how often this comes up. Um, maybe maybe it's not surprising, but I, I was surprised at how often people ask me, uh, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody to hear it, does it make a sound? And uh, the answer is yes. And the answer is no, it's both. Uh, so yes, it makes a sound because sound in kind of a simple definition is a vibration of molecules, you know, a wave of energy passing through molecules in a, you know, in a medium. Uh, that's in a way that's all that sound is but there's also of course if if nobody hears it you know does it matter so uh i mean there is for example you know there is sound on mars but nobody there to listen to it until i get the rovers muddled up is it perseverance the most recent one uh anyway it recorded whichever the most recent uh nasa rover on mars last year i think early 22 it, it sent back uh, the first recording of the sounds of the wind on Mars. That, of course, that wind has been blowing for billions of years, but nobody's heard it before. The sound was always there. Nobody heard it. So, I mean, in a way, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a question with two answers which are contradictory. And maybe that arguably points to something deeper, because I sometimes think when people ask this question, what they're really thinking about is, well, uh, what is the world without me, you know, <laughs> without without my consciousness or or our consciousness, you know? Does it matter? Does it exist? And that's, a, of course, a question you know we all have to face at some point. Indeed, but to be fair, I was saying, what 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 is the world without a bacteria? To be fair, raised <laughs> <laughs> <Well>, it. <laughs> which, which you know, it's not. It quite might be your ancestor, Neil. You know, indeed, you never know. indeed, it, it would be my ancestor. Absolutely, <laughs> it, it might be vital to your immune system, so healthy functioning. You know, don't don't diss the bacteria, man. <laughs> um. So, how did sound possibly aid the expansion of the universe? Well, uh, so we, we've all heard of the Big Bang, which, of course, a phrase was, I think it was Fred Hoyle who coined it. And it was a kind of derogatory uh, coinage. You know, when he when he came up with it, he he thought the idea was was kind of rubbish. So he gave it a ridiculous name and he wasn't suggesting there was a sound. And the, the cosmological model, which for now is, I think, is pretty much accepted, is that there was a um, an event which is referred to now as the Big Bang. And in the short periods of time after it, there was a massive expansion. Uh, some way into that process in a time frame sometimes is described in like hundreds of thousands of earth years there was um a state of very very hot matter um through which uh obviously huge amounts of energy um, you know inconceivable amounts of energy were passing including in acoustic waves um strictly this is sound it's acoustic obviously there was nobody there to hear it but they are acoustic waves they they can be described by the exactly the same equations that can describe you listening to me and me listening to you and these waves did help to i mean putting it in very simple terms and i don't claim to really understand much beyond the simple terms that have been explained to me but in very simple terms the acoustic waves created concentrations if you like wave fronts in the matter of the very very early universe and uh concentrations of matter that later gave rise to galaxies and and all the things in them are were concentrated on these wave fronts so there you are. You mentioned the music of the spheres. Um, so tell us something about what we meant by that, um, but also how both modern composers and scientists have been recreating it. 
this phrase, I imagine most people have heard it or and maybe they're quite familiar with it. Maybe, maybe they know a lot more and quite possibly a lot more than me. But anyway, uh, it goes back to at least um, this uh, figure, Pythagoras. We've all heard of Pythagoras' theorem. Uh, he was uh, he's actually not, you know, slightly murky figure in the sense that it's, it's not entirely sure who he was and there's not much record of his life. And nevertheless, an ancient Greek who believed that uh, in some sense everything was number and that uh, specifically with regard to the music of the spheres, the planets were making a beautiful harmony in heavens. And this was, if you could access and become part of this, it would uh, lead to, um, I mean, I'm using anachronistic terms, but I'll say kind of enlightenment and spiritual, you know, spiritual growth. Those are very anachronistic terms, not the terms he would have used. Uh, but, but nevertheless, you know, you would get more in touch with, with the universe and be a better person and a, and a, a better Pythagorean. So you've got this idea, and it come, it, it's a very powerful idea that, you know, the heavens, the, the, the planets maybe were kind of literally singing notes or even harmonies. And as they, as they processed through the heavens, creating this wonderful whole. In the, in the early modern period, the scientific revolution, uh, you know, this idea was kind of revived. And Johannes Kepler, a contemporary Galileo, who uh, was, wanted to prove this idea, you know, that by, by his time in the, around the year 1600 or so, uh, with very much improved observation techniques, you know, he, he set out to show that the planets were in these, their orbits were in ratios which were uh, analogous to the harmonic ratios of music. Um, of course, he actually discovered that if you do turn them into the harmonic ratios, which uh, they figure through the heavens, you get a pretty unpleasant uh, uh, clash and dissonance and lots of kind of wobbling weird notes, which sound more like uh, music concrete gone wrong. So the idea ceased to have, uh, broadly speaking, much kind of scientific uh, credibility. In fact, it had basically none at all. But as a myth, as an idea, it's, you know, it's remained incredibly powerful. And of course, you know, the idea, you know, we're all maybe in some sense, among other things, often seeking for some sense of harmony and meaning in our lives. And the idea that the heavens reflect this is, remains very powerful. So it continues to be something that uh, the composers and, and scientists and others, you know, continue to be intrigued by. And there, there are two ways in which uh, I can mention, I mean, there are many more, but here's two in which it's, uh, you can see it in, in the present day. Uh, one is that um, musicians working with physicists and others are using a technique called sonification. That just means turning data into sound. Um, so if you like, you know, imagine a graph, one end, the arrow is low and the other end it's high. And you'd represent that in sound with a low sound going up to a high sound, you know, very simple idea. You can take this and apply it to um, data in the heavens, in, in, the, in the skies. And there, it turns out, you know, in the last 10 or 20 years or so, there's been this astonishing, well, it was theorized before, but a discovery uh, and observation of, of huge numbers of exoplanets. That's planets orbiting other stars. In fact, it's now thought that most stars have planetary systems. And a few of these are actually are in these wonderful harmonic ratios. So that's, uh, and this can then be reproduced in sound through sonification. So you can get a system with, um, if you like, a home note and a fifth and maybe a minor third. And these will be almost perfect harmonic ratios of these exoplanets. So that's one, that's one example. And then uh, there are all through the 20th century and well, before the 20th century, but into the 20th century and beyond into this century, uh, there are composers and musicians who've who've gone back to this idea of music of the spheres and and uh, made works. Um, I mean, jazz musicians like uh, the late Pharaoh Saunders have written music like this, and uh, Max Richter and many many others. And I describe some of these in the book. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Casper Henderson, and we're talking about his new book, A Book of Noises, Notes on the Oraculus. And Casper, I want to talk about some of the um, geophony noises now, and we'll start by, I guess, what presumably was the loudest noise that's ever happened on the planet. Uh, Yeah, Neil, I think you might be talking about the Chicxulub impactor, this... uh this uh, piece of rock from the sky that uh, did is thought to have done the dinosaurs in around 65 million years ago. It's probably, it could be uh, responsible for the loudest sound ever made on Earth. Of course, there were no humans, there were dinosaurs to hear it, and many dinosaurs did have a sense of hearing. And uh, it, yeah, created, um, uh, you know, how it <laughs> wiped out vast amounts of life on Earth. Uh, and uh, what to say? I mean, it's it's right off off the top of the scale, and I've tried in the in the little thing I've written about it to just try and get my head around it and to share the kind of wonder of what that must have been like. And on a similar theme, the um, something that there was human beings around for, which was the um, the Krakatoa eruption, which is also a famously loud event. Yes, that's right. Um, so the Krakatoa volcano in eighteen eighty three one of the biggest ever recorded, one of the biggest eruptions ever recorded, created vast tsunamis and killed tens of thousands, perhaps well over 100,000 people. And uh, 160 kilometers away, uh, the sound was measured 172 decibels. That's kind of enough, basically, to 
uh, to cause severe damage, certainly deafen people, but cause severe damage to them. It's just four times as loud as a jet engine when you're standing right next to it. Uh, and the sound waves traveled several times around the Earth. You know, by the 1880s, people had the technology and sensors to to monitor and record some of this. So, uh, yeah, it circled the grove three to four times in each direction over a period of about five days, taking 34 hours to travel around the planet. It's reckoned, by the way, that the Chicxulub impact was about half a million times more powerful than the eruption at Krakatoa. So the noise would have been correspondingly vaster. You mentioned that dinosaurs could here and obviously there would have been a whole worldscape around the dinosaurs of various different noises and obviously you know when events like that that meteorite hit the planet there is obviously mass extinction so we've lost huge amounts of the life that did once live on the planet but how do we infer what these animals would have sounded like or heard it's a it's a great question. It's a huge subject. And again, maybe I've only touched on a few examples in the book, but uh, there is now good evidence from fossils uh, of some of the sounds made by uh, very early insects. Um, so a catadid, a kind of cricket that lived around 165 million years ago, it's been possible to uh, make a pretty good, you know, the um, researchers are pretty confident that they can uh, work out what it sounded like when it rubbed its uh, rubbed a tooth vein on its wing against part of its body made a kind of very high uh, note um and they can you know they can they're pretty sure it was actually a g8 that's at 6400 hertz so about a fifth above the highest note on the piano so so they can actually say yeah this is what an insect sounded like 165 million years ago and um there's plenty of evidence that uh, quite a number of dinosaurs used sound they made calls and they listened there's uh there's a splendid uh, dinosaur called uh, uh parasaurolophus it was a kind of hydrosaur and it was about four meters tall and nine meters long about the size of a bus and it made a noise through a hollow bony tube on its head that was connected to its nostrils and curled back over the top of its skull and the sound that people have made a model of the skull and the the sound that the dinosaur probably blew through it and it sounds like a really really big trombone or maybe a, a massive trombone mixed with a huge fart, maybe. maybe. Um, so, uh, you know, some of these sounds, it is possible to recreate and uh, we can infer much more from other bits of evidence. Within the um, the section on biophony, you talk about various different animals and, and the sounds that they make and how they communicate, um, whales being one of them, and there's chapters on various different types of birdsong, nightingales, for instance. But I wanted to talk particularly about the the chapter on elephants and how elephants use both sound but also ultrasound to communicate. Uh, yeah, so elephants uh, have an extraordinary sense of hearing and um, they can actually produce sound themselves over a 10 octave range uh, from very, very high to very, very low sounds. And so they they can hear through the air just like we do. And they can actually hear a long way through the air, maybe that's considerably longer than humans. But they also sense um, vibrations through the ground. So, I mean, we can put hearing maybe in inverted commas here in quote marks, because strictly speaking, it's it's the detection of of seismic vibration and seismic waves are are similar to sound waves, but they're not exactly the same. But anyway, uh, elephants have, you know, you look at an elephant's foot and you think, yeah, it's got this big flat foot. But it, inside an elephant's foot is a remarkable pad of fat and uh, acute, acutely sensitive nerve cells that can detect tiny vibrations, very low vibrations, which are coming from a huge distance, or 
very gentle vibrations which might be very close by and so for example it's thought that it may be the case that elephants can make very very low sounds to explore what's in the beneath the earth around them with a view to finding water and detect through their feet the vibrations coming back which might change when there is more water in the soil uh, and obviously in a dry climate this is a you know very useful skill to have onto the uh anthropophy section of the book the sounds made by human beings um or at least the first one i want to talk about is not necessarily about human beings because you talk about the beginnings of language and whether or not other hominid species were able to use language uh yeah so this is a um again a huge topic and like a fool i've kind of waded in uh, you may know there's this uh, famous ban by the Société de Linguistique de Paris in 1866. They they banned speculation on the origins of language because, you know, people were just coming up with all these crazy ideas. And But a lot has changed since 1866, including, you know, there's a lot more evidence. Among other things, there are now discoveries of quite well-preserved uh, remains from uh, both early Homo sapiens and from and Neanderthals and and even earlier uh, species of in in our genus Homo, and uh, uh, yeah, there's evidence that uh, that they probably you know that there's for example in the case of Neanderthals they that they're hearing um, particularly well adapted to the range of pitches which correspond to human speech today, and they probably were able to produce a number of very complicated sounds. You know, maybe we might hesitate and call them languages as we typically use the word, but uh, they clearly had abilities to communicate using sound. And this may go much further back in, in human history than people sometimes think. I mean, I speculate a little bit on that, <laughs> uh, that perhaps, you know, one of our, maybe our most, one of our most remarkable and underrated ancestors, Homo erectus, they, um, they were around in various forms for well over a million years, which is, you know, beating Homo sapiens by at least three times so far, and uh, they have, you know, in some cases, some quite remarkable technologies, including perhaps the ability to make seagoing craft. And uh, they certainly would have used gesture and mime and vocal communication and of certain complexity. And so our languages, our language, maybe goes much further back in human and pre-human history than we sometimes think. And I wish we could hear them. I wish we could talk to them. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be amazing? It would be completely incredible. Of course, it's never going to happen, I suppose. But, you know, who knows what we may discover in future, which will make the picture even more richer and fascinating. Just to finish this off, there's the very last chapter of the book consists of a list of some of your favourite sounds. So tell us some of those. Um, sure. I mean, it's a short list. And I'd like to add a couple, actually, which aren't in there because they're just from recent experiences. But from that list, um, <laughs> so the first glug of wine as you pour it from a bottle the sigh of a small child as they finally fall asleep and the steady breathing that follows, the trickle of the stream at Hodderscombe in the Quantuck Hills, the thin ice cracking as my kayak pushes through in winter. And there's quite a number of others, but I'd like to add just two that I've heard recently. So um, the weekend before last, I had the incredible good fortune to be down in Devon with a friend on the sea, kayaking on the sea, and he took me uh, past this big range of cliffs um, there was no wind, but it was a very, and so it was a very still day, but there was a big swell coming in from the Atlantic. And so um, you could hear everything. And somewhere off the cliffs, we could hear these, the waves from the swell breaking against the rocks and the giant cliffs. And there was the 
I mean, it was the scope and scale and, and breadth of the sound. You know, this, in a sense, is uh, what people wrongly call white noise, actually pink noise, but the, what, the, the noise of crashing waves, but in a, in a kind of fashion that was uh, just exceptionally beautiful. That's one. And then here's another sound. I can't say it's actually a favorite sound, but it was a, a very forcefully uh, impactful for me. So on the day we're speaking, um, the previous night, there was a huge rainstorm, absolutely massive rainstorm where I live, and I think across much of Britain. And about one in the morning, I was listening to the intensity of the rain as it was coming down on the street outside my bedroom. And there was a kind of beauty in it just because it was so furious. And of course, unfortunately, also implicit in this is, you know, that much more extreme weather is part of climate change and the knowledge that this kind of intensity, which in some parts of the world is causing devastating floods. You know, I was hearing a part of that in this huge rainstorm falling on the street. So I've been talking to Casper Henderson. We've been talking about his new book, A Book of Noises, Notes on the Oraculous, which is out in the UK now from Granta. Casper, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Neil, thanks so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.